Welcome to the latest episode from the LDA Podcast. I'm Matt Richter, and today Clark Quinn and I are joined by instructional design guru and all-around fantastic human Julie Dirksen. Julie's been around in the business for over 15 years, creating highly interactive and, more importantly, highly effective e-learning experiences for clients all around the world. But Julie is more than that. She's one of those go-to people in the industry. She's what folks like Will Tallheimer, Patty Shank, Carl Kopp, Miriam Nealon, and so many others in our industry call a research translator. Meaning, she digs into the core issues, the practical issues in the work that learning practitioners do, and she figures out what the research says, puts it into the succinct, useful bites that are immediately applicable to all. Her first book, Design for How People Learn, is one of those rare books in L&D that broke out and became a bestseller beyond the industry. It's the go-to book for designers and trainers. So today, Clark and I get to talk with Julie about her latest book, Talk to the Elephant, Design Learning for Behavioral Change. And as Clark will say in the episode, Talk to the Elephant is a wonderful complement, a companion to Design for How People Learn. We originally planned to talk with Julie for just 20 minutes, but one hour later we were still going and felt like we could go on forever. Julie joins me and Clark at the end for the best and worst as well. So without any further delay, here's Julie. So, hey, Julie, welcome to the LDA podcast. Um, We're thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. So you were on with us many years ago when we were under the Truth and Learning banner. Yes, yes, I remember. So we had to reboot to get you back on. (laughs) (laughs) I I do repeat, I do repeat guests occasionally. Um, I've done, you know, the Mind Tools podcast. I've probably done, I don't know, three or four times now and stuff like that. So I think they had me on once, but I don't think they were happy with me. Oh, <laughs> but everything sounds better with a Scottish accent. So there's always that. Oh, that's true. <laughs> so, so great. Well, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yes. I, I will say, and I don't know, Clark, if you agree, but uh, I won't put words in your mouth, but. I dare say that I like this even better than what I thought was the best book in learning and development before. I think this is even greater than your first book. Well, thank you. So congratulations. I'm not going to say that. I think it's fabulous, but I think it's a beautiful compliment to the first book. The first book got into the core of how do you do learning design? And this one's is such a lovely what to do beyond your learning design really would be sort of the way I'd phrase it. Is is that what your intent was? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it. I sometimes describe it as, you know, taking chapter eight, which was the motivation chapter in the first book and kind of blowing it out to book length because there was so much more to talk about. You know, we kind of did the high ver- high level version in in the first book. But once you dig into this, there's there's so, so much more. And a lot of it comes down to um, there's a lot on the design side, but there's a lot on the like just making sure that you really understand the problem. Um, I mean, I always describe the problem as they know what to do, but they still aren't doing it. 
Uh, and we've all had that, right? You know, I mean, I, I do it myself. I know I should wear sunscreen every day and I wear sunscreen a lot of days. Um, uh, and I shouldn't use the little spray adhesive stuff without having safety goggles on, glasses on, but eh, probably a little bit mixed on adherence to that one too. Um, you know, so like it's human nature to a certain extent, but if we're really trying to fix it, if we don't understand the real reason why it's not happening, we can't come up with a good solution because our solution for a lot of years was just, just I don't know, tell people louder and more emphatically that, that it's really, really important. And um, if that worked, we would be in really different situation right now than we are in a lot of things. Um, but it clearly doesn't work in a lot of cases. And so the, the big question is kind of what else do we do? What else, what are our other options at that point? What I do like is that it's got that same uh, tone of yours that's very personal, you know, little asides like, oh, you know, not me or whatever it is. I just, it's comprehensive and very detailed. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean it covers everything and makes sure everything's in there. But it comes across just almost like a conversation with you. And I think both the previous book and this book, and that's why I think they're both great. And since they cover complementary things, I like them both. And there are yeah. lots of pictures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my publisher is talking about the possibility of doing audiobooks, but we I don't know how do we reconcile all the pictures. Actually, they they do that quite a bit. And a lot of the books I've been I've been doing a lot more audiobooks because I uh -huh. my eyes. And they give you an affiliated PDF. Yeah, and I've seen that. I've been enjoying I think, that. I think we'd still need some kind of compromise because there's stuff where yeah. sending you over to the PDF makes sense, but then there might be places where just describing yes. the image makes sense. And we, I was really careful um, about making sure that uh, I thought that there was good alt text for all of the images. So we do actually have descriptions, um, although I think if I was putting it into an audiobook, I, we'd still adjust them a little bit. Um, but uh you know the there's some stuff where i think just describing it in you know like having a quick description of it and continuing on would be a much more sort of user-friendly answer to it versus other things where i really think you would need to send somebody over to look at the image or you know things like that and um so i don't know i'm not sure if what will happen we've sort of just been having that conversation but we can um we'll see we'll see what happens my concern would be the situation i, I don't have a long commute, so I don't listen to podcasts, and I'd rather read than, than listen because I can read faster than uh, I can never listen. listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes, but my concern would be the if I would believe that a lot of these are used by people commuting, particularly mm -hmm. driving, and therefore I would not want them to go off to a PDF while they're it's on the true. road. You know, I I used to have, and I've worked from home for several years now, but I used to have a commute that was, because of the way the traffic flow worked, it was like a half an hour in the morning, but it could often be an, like an hour and a half on the way home. It, there's a weird bottleneck situation. And so I listened to a lot of audiobooks and a lot of like, court, you know, like the master courses or whatever they were on tape and things like that. And the only time I had trouble, like, listening to a book and driving at the same time was I listened to this really interesting book on the psychology of traffic. And I found that if I was picturing traffic scenarios in my head, it kind of interfered with my attention towards driving, which I thought was a really fascinating, like, 
oh, okay, using some similar circuits, not great. Like, I, sh you know, like I could listen to a book on tape about, you know, brains or psychology or fiction or any of those things, and it wouldn't interfere with my driving. But when I was listening to a book about driving, it kind of was a little bit of a problem to have enough attention left over for regular driving. Well, one of, one of the things that really excited me about the book, and, I, you know, I only got to see in advance one of the chapters. So when I opened it up and I saw an entire chapter on systems thinking, I was oh, so yeah. happy because <laughs> I, I think that's the thing that gets left out when people talk about behavior change. They look at the individual, but they don't look at the system and all of the factors that are antecedents to the behavior and the consequences. Yeah. And, and you really dive into both of those factors. Oh, that's good. Because I, I, I feel that. like I just barely scratched the fingernail surface of the systems thinking piece, but I wanted to make sure it was present somewhere because one of the things that's kind of implicit in the behavior change will combi model and in a lot of stuff we're doing is this really super tight zoomed in focus on the behavior. But like, if that's what you're doing, sometimes you have a, you know, forest for the trees kind of, or you know, problem. Um, so like if we're really focused on the behavior of correctly support, sorting your plastics and recycling, we're ignoring the fact that there are all these other things that are influencing whether plastics recycling is successful, like availability of aftermarket and whether or not you can actually get these recycled and do you have to ship them someplace and all of these other factors. And so um, the, the, the narrow focus on the behavior is sometimes really important for us. But at the same time, if you're not stepping back and going, wait, are we really solving the problem with this particular behavior? Or do we need to, to kind of take a broader look? I think is an incredibly important question to ask. You mentioned the COMB model and we haven't discussed it. And I thought it might be useful if you would briefly describe that because I thought it was really essential part of what you did and would be a value. Yeah, there's been a, a huge number of kind of behavioral models that have come up. Um, I originally got interested in this. My original interest in this came from a project that I was associated with kind of the mid 2000s on AIDS and HIV prevention. And I was realizing that like, oh, everybody kind of knows that condom usage is important for um, preventing AIDS and HIV spread. Um, but so telling people that again is probably not the issue and my instructional design toolbox was full with things of like how to communicate stuff or how to explain things or how to you know um help people develop skills or whatever and i'm like none of these really apply here it was really more of a it was there was more of a persuasive element and then there were some other things around it um uh but but when but i really was like i think I think we need more tools. Like, I, I think there needs to be more tools in the toolbox. And um, then when behavioral economics started to take hold, so books like Nudge and Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow and all of those kinds of things, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And those models, I think, and some of them are models and some of them are just principles and theories and things. Um, there's a lot of good stuff there, but it, it needed to mature a little bit more. Um, and there are several different models. There are several different frameworks. There are a lot of them cover very similar territory. They're all really good. I just kind of felt like I needed to pick and um, stick to one because when you hand people six different models, like that's, that's that sort of overwhelming, like, you know, too many choices. Um, 
uh, now I'm overwhelmed and now I'm just going to go back and do the things that I usually do and things like that. So I wanted to pick one. Combi is part of, which is stands for capability, opportunity, motivation equals behavior, um, is part of what's referred to as the behavior change wheel, which is Susan Mickey, people like Susan Mickey and Leo Atkins and Robert West and Paul Chadwick and people from University College London Center for Behavior Change. Um, and what they did when they were formulating these models is they did a did a sort of a meta-analysis across, I think it was like 19 different behavioral models because they would come up in different domains. So it'd be like models in healthcare and models in safety and models in public, you know, public health or, you know, like um, the behavioral insights people or, or behavioral economics. And so what Susan and her team did was to try to like get it into kind of a meta model that then, so that, you know, and part of it was an, attempt to get us using similar language so that we could do more apples to apples comparison of the research, right? So if we're using a particular strategy like salience of consequences, which personally I'm obsessed with and I love um, for a lot of things, uh, let's call it the same thing in if we're using it in safety or if we're using it in finance or we're using it in public health so that then when we're looking and doing like, you know, lit reviews to look at research to determine, you know, research direction or, or, you know, for our purposes as practitioners, if we're looking for ways, strategies that we can leverage in a project or something that we're doing in an organization, let's call it something similar so that we can, so that we can actually look at, across these different domains and not just, um, uh, you know, not just be kind of stuck in a little silo of, of the conversation. And so, um, combi is, I like it because it is really thorough and really complete. Um, you know, there's a, there's a few little places where I'm like, oops, you know, there's maybe something we want to nudge in, in here, but, um, but it's a top level model that says, is the person capable of doing the behavior? Do they have the opportunity to do the behavior? And that could be a social opportunity or it could be um, physical opportunity. Like does the system or the environment support it? And are they motivated to do the behavior? And then from there, it maps over to different, you know, like depending on what kind of problem you have, maybe training helps, but maybe um, persuasion helps or maybe incentives help or, you know, things like that. And then ultimately it ends up in this be this thing that's the behavior change technique taxonomy. And it has like 93 different things and uh, and that gets a little overwhelming. So part of the challenge of writing the book was to try to bring a lot of that stuff together, but in a way that wasn't completely overwhelming. <laughs> or at least that was the goal. <laughs> it strikes me a bit like, you know, the justice systems means motive and opportunity, um, mm -hmm. you know, capability, opportunity and motivation. Uh, you're, you're playing detective to figure this out, but you've given a really uh, rich toolbox. Yeah, and I mean, we focus so heavily on capability, but there's a lot of things that can be part of a good learning experience that play into social or play into motivation or play into even um, like, can I give you techniques to adapt your environment to make the behavior more likely, you know, things like that. Um, and it also helps us pinpoint where uh, you know, where where training isn't going to be the answer. You know, um, uh, misaligned incentives are always a favorite. We can train all we want, but if we're incenting the wrong behavior, you know, we're not going to make a dent in that usually. So, so one of the things that uh, Combi 
is a wonderful way to map to your solution. Mm -hmm. And it's looking at the individual person. How do we connect the solution to the bigger picture to make sure that we're, we're actually solving the right problem, that it's not just the individual. Maybe the problem is in that system that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. right? So how do we know that we're solving for the right issue at hand? And yeah, or uh, instead of it just being a correlation. Right. Right. And I, we are hand waving a little bit in the book, the idea that you've identified that this behavior is actually going to lead to an outcome that you're that you're looking for. Um, but I do think that asking that question and that's kind of why chapter two was that systems view, which is to sort of think about like, hey, um, uh, you know, we can we can do this, but you're not going to make a dent if uh, if the problem is part of the broader system. So one of the examples that I use in, in the systems thinking chapter is the example of pay disparity um, based on race or gender and the salesforce.com example, right? And at salesforce.com, they genuinely believe that they were a progressive company and that they were, you know, paying people equitably and that, um, the uh you know the intention was absolutely to to do that and to be that you know be that kind of company it was in their values the ceo supported it all of these kinds of things and we've all you know had brushes up against you know what's de now dei training but it was you know diversity training or you know things like that and you know an outcome of that would hopefully be paying people based on their abilities and their experience and you know the fair factors and not paying them less because of gender or race or any of those kinds of things well the the thing that they found out at salesforce was it's super hard to tell it's really difficult to know if there's a pay disparity that's attributable only to race or gender. Um, and the only way that they could figure it out was a company-wide survey of uh, pay rates. And they had to, they brought in consultants to try to make sure, because there's always a reason, right? There's always a reason for, oh, I'm going to pay this person less because hey, I think they'll take less or, um, you know, be they they have a little bit less experience than this person over here or whatever. And all of these things, I think, are rational in like the individual context, because I think most pay disparities aren't because people are like, I really want to pay people less based on, you know, race and gender. Like, I, I, I don't think that's the source of the issue. You know, like, I don't think there's Machiavellian. I mean, I'm sure there, those people exist, but but I don't think that's explains I don't think that explains the level of it that we're seeing in a system level. And so what they really needed was to have good visibility into if this person has this level of experience and they have these kind of qualifications. And if we, you know, do this, we can have these objective measures that say that this person should, you know, make this much. And if they don't, then and the only difference seems to be race or gender, then like, that's a problem. And they spent millions. I mean, I think they spent three or 6 million the first year and then wound up spending money subsequent years because one of the things they found is they couldn't do it just once. 
you know, Salesforce was buying other companies and they'd bring those pay disparities into the organization and that these things creep in whether we want them to or not. Um, for years, historically, one of the, the organizations that had the lowest level of pay disparity was the U.S. Postal Service because they had such clear guidelines around pay raises. If you had this much experience and you had these job responsibilities, you made this much money and they still had some gender pay disparity but it was much less than like in you know other organizations where there was much more judgment being used and if we think about it like pay raises were all um societally programmed to not talk about how much money we make right and that 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 societal norm means that you can't like the first thing you're told when you're supposed to negotiate a salary is you find out what your what the norms are and what you you know like establish what you're worth but like that's actually super difficult information to get there's sites now like salary.com and things like that that make it a little bit easier but even those are like well it's a general thing and they don't really know what instructional designers do so you know it's kind of a weird category over there or i have a job title that just doesn't have very much data associated with it or any of those kinds of things and so those are all of these kinds of systemic things so us going in and teaching a nice dei class where we say hey you should treat all your employees fairly no matter what their um, gender or ethnicity or race or any of those factors well like that's nice but it's not going to fix a systemic problem if there's lack of transparency and if there isn't enough data and if you know there's norms around secrecy and all of this kind of stuff mm -hmm. well, and then that's kind of like the uh, orchestra example mm -hmm. so rather than solving the root cause if you you have no way of having insight into the dni issues mm -hmm. up front because people are either unaware or the policies are so invasive they don't they don't allow you to deal with them all. So rather than do that, you solve for the outcome you want. Mm -hmm. And so that's what Salesforce did. So uh, like the orchestra where they put up the blind curtain and they were. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, and all of a sudden you went from all old white men in every orchestra to a highly diverse body of musicians. Right. When they better. did the auditions behind a curtain, yeah. so you couldn't see what the person looked yeah. like. Or they... hear them. They would even have them take their shoes off. Oh, funny. <laughs> Yeah. So they can hear like high heels or something. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well done. Exactly. Yeah. No. And I mean, I used to, um, when I taught college students, one of the things that I was trying to do more of, and I kind of had worked my way into it, was trying to figure out a way to do blind grading. Um, because I would find myself, and I don't think I was being influenced by like race or ethnicity or things like that, but you're like, oh, I know this student really is trying hard you know, and like, that's great. Or I know that this student, you know, um, means really well and try, you know, like usually does really well. So I'm going to be a little bit more generous, you know, like I know that I was influenced by like personality and, you know, some of those kinds of things. And I tried to have as many kind of objective rubrics and point systems and things like that to adjust for it but i could sort of absolutely feel myself being like but i you know but they're they're so earnest you know i want to give you know i want to encourage that and and i don't think that there should ever be zero um opportunity for some subjectivity and things like a system that's 100 percent objective you know kind of has some of its own issues but at the same time it, at least a first pass of grading going through where um, I didn't necessarily know which student had submitted some work. There's some real, you know, there's some real upside to that. So, 
Right. One of the things I, just in this conversation and thinking back in, in the book, so often in performance consulting, um, you'll see people go, okay, I'm going to go find the root cause and then I'm going to address it. I'm going to, you know, as you said, incentives, I'll fix the incentives or I'll put a job aid or I'll do this. And one of the things I liked about your book in particular was it didn't say only look at this. It said evaluate all these things and figure out solutions for everything to minimize all the barriers, not just taking care of the one that we've targeted. Yeah. And I think that's a, a perspective that would be useful in the broader community in general to stop thinking, you know, singular and start saying multiplicity. How do we get this to work using all the tools in our repertoire instead of, yeah. oh, well, we've got job aid and we've got course. Bang. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's absolutely one of these things where, um, you know, there's no magic bullets in any of this. Uh, and the, you know, I think you're always kind of creating a, a a whole, you know, kind of lineup of things that you can use to try to, you know, kind of nudge things one way or another. Um, not that I mean, nudge is a loaded word, but um, in the uh, in, in space, because it's the other piece of it, too, is that even the principles that we think are well established from the research often get beaten up in replication crises. So there's a bunch of stuff, you know, Daniel Kahneman's thinking class and slow is absolutely a classic, but there's stuff in there that, that he has himself sort of said, look, this didn't replicate well, you know, so um, some of the priming research didn't replicate well. And so he's, you know, he's retracted it himself. I don't know if they've, I don't know if they've fixed subsequent printings of the book to remove it or what they've done about that, but, but he's publicly sort of said, yeah, yeah, this one, eh, you know, um, and uh, and so the and the other thing about like even the best research in the world is that it always happens in inherently artificial conditions. You know, if we've managed to isolate um, the variables enough that we are confident we can prove some causality, that means we've inherently created. You know, I mean, there's field research, sure, but um, the. Uh, the even the field research was not done in your environment and in your context. And so I think of a lot of these things as starting places. You know, we're going to take the best that we can from the research and we're going to take the best that we can from our analysis and we're going to come in and we're going to sort of say, here, let's formulate some strategies. And then now we need to collect some data or look at how you know, whether this stuff is working and then um, adjust and adjust and adjust because part of it is we're just going to do a big solution and we're going to implement it and then wait, it didn't work perfectly. And it's like, well, you know, in complex environments, most things probably don't work perfectly right out of the gate. You gotta, you gotta like, you know, do more of the things that are working, do less of the things that aren't working, maybe try some other stuff, you know, like that should be normal part of the process. Except what you're saying is, you know, I'm, I'm going to go mock horror, T test, test. We don't have time for that. <laughs> I, had, I see a lot of that. The first yeah. of all, you know, we, we're not going to test. How do you deal with that in this, the situations, you know, that your readers are going to face? I've been trying to sort of help people kind of think about, because um, a lot of times, 
yeah, like A-B testing would be great if we could do a little bit more of that. Um, you know, we're getting into these data-driven organizations where we'll actually be able to see some, you know, deltas on it. I was talking to somebody from um, very large coffee retailer that I, you know, nameless, but um, who who does actually have things like customer satisfaction metrics and um uh, like drinks at per hour served or, you know, whatever it is, um, metrics. And so can like, you know, was able in a position to be like, let's roll this customer service video out to 40 stores and then compare that against 40 stores where we didn't roll it out and see if we see a lift in the 40 stores where we rolled out this, you know, particular thing or something like that. And so there, there are situations where there's sales organizations, customer service organizations, typically organizations that are collecting a decent amount of data at this point. And we're starting to see that kind of happen more places. Um, the so that's part of it but also i've been really trying to like kind of talk to people about more say like cohort analysis or something like that where you follow a smaller group around because you don't have the budget or you don't have the reach to like gather data from an entire population but can you still inform your practice a little bit by gathering you know can you get can you get actual behavioral data from 20 people you know and i mean I don't want to get into the arguments about what's statistically significant or, you know, what's a big enough sample size, because quite frankly, some data is probably better than no data for a lot of these people. Um, now, granted, you could you could narrow it too much and then you're getting misled by the data. But I honestly, if that's the problem that we're having, I'll take that over, you know, people not getting any, any inf information about the efficacy of their measures. So that at least just starts us down the path of fixing that as opposed to not, just not doing anything about it at all. So that brings up a, another interesting section in the book that uh, uh, the notion of value versus effort. Mm, yeah. Right. Because uh, as we start to try and figure out what's broken, sometimes what's broken doesn't matter because I just don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Or I don't want to cope with it. And so you, so first, if you could define what you mean by value versus effort, but then I want to pose a scenario to you where I, I'm, I'm just not sure the formula always works. Okay. All right. Cool. I like it. Um, uh, so there are two common things that I think every single behavior change problem I've ever seen have in common. One is some kind of delayed or absent feedback, and we can kind of talk about that later. But uh, the other one is just competing priorities, right? Like in the ideal world, if I clear your schedule and give you enough time to do this thing and a mandate and, you know, whatever, like we can probably get the behavior in a lot of these cases. The challenge is, is that there are 37 things that you need to be doing with every minute of every day and you've got to pick, right? You have to decide, is this a high enough priority? And so a lot of times we're not we're not getting high enough up on the list. You know, we're going in at number 36. Like they're like, yeah, 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 I can see why this be important. But like that person's getting through their top five that day. They're not getting down to 36. So unless you're coming in at, you know, number four, you're not even on the board, you know, in a lot of cases. So the issue of competing priorities is a really big one, which means that it's super important for us to communicate the value of what we're talking about. Um, uh, the value of the training class, you know, things like that. And so the formula that you're going to question me on, which I'm looking forward to this, um, is that I usually kind of the variables that I usually talk about. One is how big is the the reward or consequence that we're dealing with, right? Um, uh, then how immediate is it? 
is it going to happen immediately? Is it going to happen at some delayed point? Or maybe it's, you know, you maybe it may be um, not at all. So, um, so the size, the immediacy, um, how likely is it? You know, is it something that happens most of the time when, you know, in the circumstances or is it pretty infrequent? Um, and, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on my, what's my fourth one? Um, I only wrote a whole chapter Not about certain, this. Immediate future. Yeah, and, immediacy, uh, likelihood. Oh, salience. Yeah, how tangible is it? How much does it feel real? Is it is it very abstract, or does it feel real to people? Um, so, if we think about saving for retirement, right? Um, it's something where, you know, like not saving enough for retirement is pretty bad. Like none of us want to be in that situation where we get to retirement age and we don't have the financial wherewithal. Right. Um, But it's definitely not immediate for most people. Right. Unless they're, you know, in the last few years of their career or something like that, and they're starting to feel the pressure of it, you know, but like somebody who's 25 is potentially 40 plus years away from needing this money. So it's very not immediate. Um, the tangibility thing is an interesting one. Does it feel real to me, right? Um, or does this feel like an abstraction? And so when you go to the financial per- advisor, I have one of those, and they are like risk profiles and, you know, money markets and da 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 like it goes abstract real quick for me, you know? And at a certain point, I'm like, is, am I doing okay? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay. But like this, the details of it are very abstract. And they'll be like, which of these mutual funds do you like? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I pay you to like one. I don't know. They all look the same to me. Um, and so there's a lot of intangibility and a lot of abstraction that's happening in that space that probably makes it harder for me to make good decisions about um, some of those things. And then the the likelihood issue, right? Um Oh, I don't know, saving for retirement, um, eh, it's fairly likely that you're going to n- need to do that one. But, you know, other things like the dangers of texting while driving, well, you know, um, I am somebody who believes that I don't text while driving. Um, and I don't, except when occasionally, very rarely I do. And when I do, I've always gotten away with it. Um, and I don't text. I sometimes have been known to type in an address for directions or something. Um, you know, that I'm still typing the last few digits of is the light changes from red to green and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, uh, But generally speaking, no, I don't text while driving, Um, (laughs) except, you know, nobody's, nobody's, nobody's perfect on it. Um, But the likelihood, especially for people who've done it on a regular basis, it feels very unlikely. Like I've gotten away with a bunch of times, you know, and my, my direct experience with it is that it's been okay. Um, and so intellectually, I know it's not okay, but my visceral experience of it has been that it's okay. And also the likelihood that it's going to turn into an accident, even though I know that that's not, that it's possible and it would be very, very bad if it happens, it feels unlikely to me. And so a lot of this is not even necessarily about how likely it actually is, but how likely it feels. Because elephants... So that's it. Sorry, I wanted to jump in. Go ahead, Clark. Again, you're mentioning something that is prominent. In fact, it's in the title. And yet we haven't talked about that (laughs) distinction between writer and elephant. Yeah. Yeah. I talked about this in the first book. And so some people are already familiar. But it's this idea that you've got kind of a dual decision-making system in your brain. And that a lot of your brain is concerned with, like, things you can touch and taste and feel and sense, like vision and hearing 
Um, you know, it's about um, moving around in the world. It's about like touching things and sensing and, you know, things like that. And that this vers visceral, automatic, habit-driven, you know, the, the part of your brain that runs largely without kind of conscious thought is all of this elephant brain. And it's your emotional brain, like so feelings rather than, you know, kind of intellectual thoughts. And um, that then we have, and that's your elephant. And then we have a rider, which is your logical, analytical, uh, verbal thinking brain. It's things like your prefrontal cortex, where we're doing projecting into the future and considering consequences, executive function, logic, impulse control, all of those kinds of things. And we like to privilege that and think it's in control most of the time, but there's a lot of times where it's not. And so if we think about, um, we were talking about the hand washing before we got started. If we think about hand washing, you know, my hand looks pretty clean right now, but I know it's intellectually, I know it's not clean enough for like, say, medical purposes. Um, and I'd probably wash my hands before I started to do food preparation. Um, but if I look at it, my my physical experience is that my hand is clean. So my elephant is like, yeah, it's probably fine. Um, versus my intellectual knowledge, which understands abstract concepts. I mean, it's not an abstraction, it's real, but it's invisible. So it's kind of abstract, which is things like germ theory, and, um, you know, stuff like that. And so that's a push-pull. And we all went through our hand-washing, you know, during the pandemic thing, where we found out that 20 seconds is a really long time to wash your hands. Shouldn't be. It doesn't sound that bad. But turns out it really is. And we all needed strategies and tricks. And I would guess most people's hand-washing is still kind of eroded. Whereas if you're going to cook dinner and you really want to make sure your hands are clean, you should still probably be doing the 20 seconds. But eh, if I get halfway there, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it. So, so your rider knows germs, but your elephant is like, yeah, looks okay. But the elephant's the one that remembers. <laughs> I know you get mixed, you get mixed metaphors with the elephant. So that, that no, part, that's part of the challenge. Actually, actually, you know, like things like flashbulb memory and that sense memory for highly emotionally impactful events. Yeah. That elephant remembers that stuff for sure. Actually, uh, my daughter, every, everyone who's been listening, all two people that listen to this podcast know my daughter's minoring in education. And uh, so uh, I gave her your book last week. Oh, yay. And um, and she's her assignment is to create a textbook for first year education students. Ah. And uh, so I gave her your book because I, I felt like your book needed to be represented in her assignment. And she she called me up and she said, I don't get the elephant thing. So I knew she hadn't read the first chapter. Oh, so, but the elephant thing was so intriguing the title alone was captivating for her. Okay. It was into it. Oh, good. Uh, good, good, good. Yeah. So I think it's a super metaphor to, to go into it. And I wanted to challenge the value effort thing. Yeah. Not because I actually think there's anything to challenge. I don't. <laughs> but I wanted to use it as a lever to get you to talk about immediacy versus future state and mm -hmm. and those three factors. Sure. Uh, you know, for me, it was Aubrey Daniels. I got that stuff out of Aubrey Daniels. And mm -hmm. uh, I like the way you explain it better because um, the the notion of, of it being more abstract or concrete is so much more powerful uh, a concept. Mm -hmm. um, uh, taxes were the one that, that was the example that really got me because I'm awful at filing on time. Yeah. 
and and yet the um, the punishment is immediate i mean you get hit with the fine immediately within a second of being late and mm -hmm. you also the effort is obviously less probably than the cost and yet many of us americans file late yeah and so yeah, how yeah. do we justify the model in that context like there's obviously it fits but what is the explanation mm -hmm. for for that or quitting yeah. smoking right you talk about quitting smoking mm -hmm. lots of people still don't quit smoking even though they're hacking away and they stink and cost a ton of money and yeah 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 well and smoking is an interesting one because um is paul paul chadwick was um he's out of ucl uh the ucl uh people at the university of um university college london center for behavior change and he was the technical editor on the book and he's like julie you know smoking is an addictive behavior you maybe don't want to tread into those waters and i'm like ah yeah probably so i i kind of dialed back the smoke some of the smoking references because once you get into physical addiction and things like that it gets complicated and i'm not absolutely not advocating any of this as treatment for um you know things that are physically addicting or for mental health issues or any of those kinds of things. I've got a section right at the beginning of the book where I'm like, nope, not talking about that. I mean, not that some of these things don't show up in some of those, um, you know, treatment regimens or, you know, things like that, but, but I am a hundred percent, you know, disclaiming any, any expertise in those areas. Um, but yeah, so the taxes thing, you know, it kind of comes down to, um, what's the pain of you, you clearly find the effort more painful than the penalty so you know that sort of value versus effort equation like you're clearly leaning towards effort is worse than than the value piece you know so like if it was i mean i don't know what a tax i because my i have a tax guy and i say you know brad can you file an extension and he just does um <laughs> uh so i don't <laughs> they run out eventually they do run out eventually. They do. It's true. Um, uh, but uh, the um, uh, but the um, like I, I used to draw this little continuum curve. Like here's the pain of doing the task is a straight line across the top. And then the pain of not doing the task is pretty low. And then it kind of hockey sticks right up towards the end. Right. Um, so, you know, can I spend months avoiding this because there's no consequence to me avoiding it? And then all of a sudden, you know, the pain ramps up at the end. But if it, it was going to, like, cost you your house, if you didn't file your taxes on time, you'd file your taxes. Like, you'd figure this out, right? Like, if you're going to have to, like, lose your mortgage and, you know, you have your house repossessed if you don't file your taxes. So there's a size issue, right? Like, whatever the fine is it doesn't feel more painful than the, you know, the effort that you're going to expend. Now I'm not saying that this is logical stuff, right? Like I'm not saying that this, but you know, cause I mean, I have things where I avoid it for like a week and then I do it in five minutes. And so I had the unpleasantness of that task being undone for a whole week when I could have finished it in five minutes. I just didn't want to expend the effort to focus on it. Um, but that's why you put the chapter before the motivation chapter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Because mm -hmm. that motivation chapter where you get into the different regulatory facets mm -hmm. is the explanation for why I, I wait a week for something that takes five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Right? 
So that is that's a uh, what's what's the word? I'm blanking on the word when you're you're teeing something up as uh, the spice, the uh, the attraction, the uh, oh yeah, yeah. Right? I'm um, yeah teeing oh it up. I... We should do these early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> um. But you know we we all understand and we've all heard the the sort of wisdom of Whiffham, what's in it for me, yeah. um, and that is absolutely bog standard. You know, advice to anybody going into learning and development is to do the to do the what's in it for me. And I I've had a lot of dissatisfaction with that. I think um, mm-hmm. I think what's in it for me is less effective than what can I do with this. Like, is there some immediate use that I could put this to right away? I think is actually more compelling. Yeah, what problem does this solve for me today? Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, I've had several conversations with people where they're like, I just don't, you know, this is a really tough problem. And I am having really hard time getting traction with these people to like take action on it. And I'm like, okay, well, what pain points are you solving for them? And they're like, oh, and I'm like, all right. So they've got pain in their daily life. They've got things that are causing them headaches or ulcers or whatever. How can you show them how this this thing that you want them to engage with is going to actually solve those particular problems. And they're like, yeah, I could focus on those. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Why don't you try that? Um, because, you know, we care deeply about a lot of the topics that we're creating learning for, but, um, you know, if we're not being really cognizant of what pain points, like if I'm solving a problem for somebody, you know, mostly people don't have t- difficulty allocating attention to it, right? Um, You know, YouTube is filled with 9 million videos on how to fix your leaky faucet or how to, um, you know, patch your drywall or how to do whatever. And mostly people don't have to expend a lot of effort to look at those because the only reason they're watching them is because they need to patch their drywall or they have a leaky faucet they're trying to fix or, you know, those kinds of things. So if there's an immediate use for this thing that I'm learning and it's going to solve a problem for me, like that is not a place we typically have, you know, big issues with learner motivation. It's the, you may need this compliance knowledge about signs of money laundering, but you may not see it for six months. And even if you do see it, it's going to not have anything to do with you except maybe to make your life more difficult because now you get a file, you know, the incident report and do all of this stuff that's actually extra effort and going to make your life more difficult. You know, like those are situations where, um, you know, the motivation is a little different. I feel like we could spend hours and hours and hours diving into the book and, and just talking to you for forever about this. That'd be fun. Although at a certain point, we'd probably lose some of the listenership, but it would be still be fun to do. All two of them would stick. My dad will <laughs> stay. <laughs> so, but so we, we do need to wrap this up. But do you have any final uh, piece, of, a single piece of practical advice? that you might offer other oh, than gosh. buy the book and read it, um, which you should all do. You're right. Right. Um, I have one of the things that people really resonate with is this sort of change ladder um, thing, which is based on these risk assessment ladders that were used in research studies. Robert West and some of his colleagues use them around things like smoking cessation, I think alcohol usage and like texting while driving and stuff like that. And it's this, it's this like, 10 sort of things to, you know, questions to ask. Um, I ideally ask your learners about whether or not, um, is it that they don't know about the behavior? Do they know about the behavior, but they don't understand why it's important? They understand why it's important, but they're not convinced. Um, they're 
convinced, but they're having a hard time getting started or they don't know what to do. They don't feel confident. They don't, you know, like, you know, just a kind of a series of questions to go through um, to kind of figure out where people are along the, along the process. And it's not a linear thing. It's not like everybody goes through every step or that you can't have kind of multiple ones at the same time, but it does give you kind of just a framework for thinking about it. And learning is the answer to some of those problems, but then there's other things where it's much more about like practical support or sorting out the environment or making it easier or creating some social support or, you know, any of those kinds of things. Um, uh, And that has been, I think, one of those things where people are like, Oh, sure. This is, I can see why this would be helpful. I put a, um, I put a survey version on the website. So it's on the um, usablelearning.com slash elephant. So if people want to get a, you know, download a version of that, they can get that there. Um, But uh, that one's a nice one because it, it, it's, it's, I think a lot of times these get viewed as either people are in or they're out. And it's really much more nuanced than that. But this is just kind of a simple way to think through that. Thank you, Julie. And we're going to put all the or most of the notes uh, in, in the uh, the episode uh, page for everybody, including the reference for where you can find the book, uh, find Julie, and learn more about uh, elephants and riders <laughs> as you go through these behavior shifts. So thank you. Julie, you said you would stay with us to talk about the best and the worst. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Now on to the best and worst. As always, we each share one best observation or experience and one worst over the past week. I'll go first, Julie, to show you what we're, we're talking about. The best of the week for me was working with a, a small group of folks that we're, we're dealing with uh, in our LOLA, Live Online Learning Activities Workshops. And we've been working with them all year, training them. And this week, we decided to impromptu, spontaneously test them. And so we threw them into the deep water and asked them to uh, take a specific topic that they're working on in real life and to run an activity with the rest of the class, essentially role play it. And we spent the entire session making them do spontaneous teachbacks with their own content. Oh, nice. And not wow. only did they do an incredibly great job, but they modified the activities in such a way where they were able to uh, achieve the objectives that they were hoping to achieve for that part of the lesson. Okay. And they did that without warning, which meant that they had to have been prepping all along. So there was definitely month to month, the uh, touch points and the spaced practice and mm-hmm. all the things we talk about. And so that was quite rewarding to see them do that uh, all on their own when we tested them. The worst has been this notion that uh, training doesn't need content. Uh, Working with a uh, set of clients that I will not name because I like them, um, but they keep asking for experience absent the content. In other words, give learners a topic, let them talk about it, and therefore they've learned something. And this is a pattern I keep seeing over and over again, 
and uh, more and more that it's more about the experience of having participants engage with each other and less of, about the instruction, the instructional design, mm. the content that supports skills and so forth. And so that's the worst. Julie, you want to go next? Sure. Sure. I've got a couple of examples of some things that I've seen in the last, you know, kind of week or two. Um, I was just listening to a podcast kind of right before I came on this one, actually, um, from somebody who I think is doing some really cool stuff. It's a woman out of, I think it's UC Boulder. Um, she's a professor in their informatics uh, department who does a lot on fair use. Um, so she has uh, maybe one of my favorite like YouTube videos, which she explains um, the concept of the legal concept of fair use using the example of wolf, like wolf themed erotica. Um, uh, but it's a great, it's a great uh, video that kind of goes through um, the different tenets of fair use and kind of how that conversation, which I think is a useful thing for us to understand. Um, but the other reason I think she's interesting and cool is that she did a whole course on um, tech ethics. So she teaches things like ethics for technology, which is absolutely something we should also be paying attention to. I did have a very, very short, but I wanted to make sure it was in there, um, section on ethical issues in terms of behavior change interventions, which I think apply to a lot of our, our learning interventions. Um, but she did a, a whole course on tech ethics using TikTok. Mm. Um, so chopping it into little TikTok inspected by syllabus and there's additional readings and things like that. So it is a full college, you know, college course syllabus, but the, um, the whole lecture component and stuff like that got replaced with TikTok videos. And it's an actual good example of this because I've been a little skeptical in that space. Um, but I think it's totally worth, uh, you know, kind of going and checking out how she did it. Um, so I will give you the links to some of that stuff uh, to put in the show notes. Um, so that's a good example and somebody I think, and she's just an interesting person to follow too, but um the other uh, piece of it is uh, a not so great example is I have been waiting for the dust to settle on some of this AI large language model stuff for a while and trying not to have too many opinions yet while the hype cycle is still, you know, been peaking. Um, but apparently I'm bad at not having opinions. Um, uh, so uh, somebody posted in a listserv that I was on um, a thing about, was isn't it amazing how these kids today are using chat GPT to learn all sorts of stuff? And this lovely, very earnest YouTuber had used chat GPT to create a whole curriculum for learning Python, the programming language. And then she used it to create a study plan. And then she used it to suggest resources. And... Um, there were several things she was talking about in the video that weren't quite right about how learning and curriculum works. There was some mention of learning styles and there was some inaccurate definitions about certain things. Um, and so I was kind of like, okay, I'm good. I'm a little skeptical, um, but I don't, I don't know enough about Python to judge the curriculum that she generated. And so the person who had posted it said, well, why don't you use it on a curriculum that you understand um, uh, that you do know something about so you can, judge it. So I used her exact same chat GPT prompts and created an instructional design curriculum, which is something that I, I, I may have a few opinions about. And granted, I'm nitpicky and all this kind of stuff, but um, 
the the first thing she was like, give me the twenty percent of the content that's going to give me eighty percent of the utility. So the Pareto principle, but applied to um, curriculum, which I'm not sure is entirely a thing. Um, and it did have some big missing pieces. Like it decided that ethics and accessibility and learning theory and stuff were not necessary parts of um, an instructional design curriculum. So it didn't love that. Um, when I asked it to create a study plan, it said it was going to create a study plan that was four hours a week for 12 weeks. And it gave me, I think, an actual plan that was about 12 hours and didn't make a ton of sense. So that one wasn't very useful. Um, when I asked it for resources, it recommended my book and some other smart people's books, but it um, gave me a bunch of YouTube videos that I'm pretty sure are hallucinations. All the links were broken and I actually think they, I mean, I know most of the people that would have created those videos and I don't think they actually exist. Um, and then what was the fourth question? It was, um, oh, um, some sample projects that you could work on to learn it. And that actually, of all of the things I asked for, was the most useful. Um, not because you could necessarily actually work on these sample projects, because some of them were things like employee onboarding and you need a subject matter expert, but the list of projects it generated for workplace learning ideas was actually pretty good and would give you an idea in the career kind of how you'd be spending your time. So in the scheme of things, I think there was about eh, maybe 30 to 40% sort of useful content. Um, about another 40% of stuff that was fairly mediocre, not that great. And then about 20%, I'm not sure if this adds up to a hundred, but you get, you know, it's in the neighborhood, but another, you know, like the remainder was just complete, like hallucinatory nonsense, um, which actually matches up with most of my results when I've been trying to use the large language models. Um, so, uh, that is reliable. <laughs> Um, so I would put that in worst. I'd probably mm -hmm. say that, that I don't yeah. think that that was great, um, a great outcome for those. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there are useful ways to leverage these tools and they're, they're not going to go away. Um, but I do still want to caution about over overstatement of the the wonderful marvelousness of them they're still very much a mixed bag um and i don't love any tool that doesn't give me the the citations you know i always want to know where did this come from so i can trace it back and make sure i understand and so the the deliberate choice on the part of the designers to not provide references for the things which i think was a lot about them not getting sued and not a lot about what's actually useful for the um, people using them. Um, yeah. Means that, you know, use with caution. Yeah. So. How about you, Clark? So on a re slightly related note, um, Christy Tucker, who writes about scenarios quite well, wrote this nice piece that said, SMEs should not be writing scenarios. And I can't agree more, but that's a bad thing because the fact that she has to write it, the fact that people still think, well, if you have expertise, you understand designing learning experiences mm -hmm. is a continual barrier we face. And it's frustrating to continue to have to fight that battle. Well, we'll just give SMEs authoring tools and they'll create great content. Uh, you don't understand they can't even access what they do. <laughs> See, you know, they can write scenarios. No, they don't understand the, the asking the important questions. And my problem with uh, 
things like ChatGPT and AI in general tends to be they focus on knowledge, not on contextual experience. So they struggle to do that. You, I, I do think they can be useful in giving you ideas, but you definitely need to be thinking. The best thing, been working with this client for a while now, and she has fabulous content, uh, 10 modules of three lessons each, that's just very detailed content. But she came to me indirectly through a, a referral, um, and she was welcome to hear the message that this is, you have content, that is not learning. But what's really fun is now I did a high level map and pointed out the things we needed from her and how, you know, to focus on the things that people need most. And the light seems to have gone on. And that's just really rewarding when you're working with a client and you're going, look, I want you to start thinking about what is it they need most? What are they going to get wrong? Let's focus there. You've got too much content to create learning experiences about, but most of it they're going to get right with the just the guidance and knowing and maybe using your tools. But the things we want to provide practice and models for are the things you'll get wrong. That light's gone on. And that's just always a wonderful thing when that happens with clients and you know the, our big issue is how do we do that at scale <laughs> um, uh, books like julie's are great ways to make that happen well thank you clark and thank you julie i love it when you're with us whether it's on the podcast or doing a program or or just when we get to just informally sit down and talk uh, it's always a delight to to have you hanging out with us Yes. No, this has been super fun. And I think if we um, if we spend a little bit more time unpacking the taxes question, we can we can yeah. start to kind of like think solve about some taxes. Solutions. Yeah, we can solve the taxes. The it's taxes a wonderful question for you. So. <laughs> yeah, me too. So next month we have Carl Kopp joining us uh, for what I anticipate will be a fun, rollicking good time, especially because Carl and I share our comic book fanaticism. Oh, nice. So no, Carl is a delight. He's, I think he might be the nicest man in e-learning. I know. I, I know. Yeah. You can't even, you can't even like prod him into saying something <laughs> inappropriate. So, so tune in for that. And don't forget Marcus Bernhardt's AI series is still plugging away. His next episode will be in two weeks. So join in for that as well. So thank you everyone. And we are off. 